You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. Hey everybody, it's David Bloom. Welcome back to another episode of Bloom in Tech, where we look at the collision of Hollywood entertainment and media and pick through the rubble for some golden gems of insight and I don't know if wisdom's quite the word, but you get the idea. Last month I was in Panama for the International Film Festival in Panama City. My partner Andrea Voche and I got a chance to sit down with uh, Edward James Olmos, the Chicano actor and activist who's been behind iconic roles such as the Lieutenant Castillo in Miami Vice and the Admiral in Battlestar Galactica and Gaff in Blade Runner and El Pachuco in Zoot Suit, among much else. Most recently, you may have seen him in the spin-off of Sons of Anarchy called Mayans MC, where he plays the father of two of the members of the Mayans Motorcycle Club as a man with a past of his own. We sat down and talked about why he was in Panama. He was there to talk up the 30th anniversary of his uh, Oscar-nominated role as Jaime Escalante, an East Los Angeles calculus teacher who helped dragoon a bunch of young barrio kids into passing the AP test in calculus and going on to great lives. He also was there for a documentary, a really striking documentary called The Sentence, about uh, some of the uh, problems in our current drug enforcement laws and how they have unintended and very terrible consequences for people who are at best only peripherally connected to that industry such as it is. Really enjoyed talking with him. He is a man who likes to talk. He is a man who has a lot of stories. In the interest of time, I've had to cut some of the conversation down so that it wouldn't go on quite too long. But we covered a lot of ground. Why Battlestar Galactica matters, how Hollywood takes treats or doesn't Uh, treat Latinos despite the fact that they're a big chunk of their audience. What motivates him to choose a role one over another? We also talk a bit about his early days growing up in East LA and getting into acting and how that led to El Pachuco and Zoot Suit and his breakthrough role and how he ended up uh, at at, uh, Miami Vice though he didn't want to take the job despite repeated efforts and offers by Michael Mann. I think it was a pretty fun conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. Give it a listen. In the meantime, we need to do a little bit of business. We first with a word uh, about our sponsor. So, come on back. And we're back. This is the conversation I had with Edward James Olmos and my partner Andrea Voche in a suite in the Hotel Central in the Casco Viejo, the oldest part of the 500-year-old city of Panama City, Panama. Lovely hotel, by the way, on a square overlooking the uh, one of the cathedrals in the Casco and a, a block away from some of the major government offices. It is not an easy place to drive into, but it's sure, sure a fun place to walk around, and it's kind of happening these days. There's lots of cool restaurants and bars and other spots come in. The Central Hotel is a, a great little hotel that uh, has been redone completely. It's something like 140 years old, but it's been redone, and it's really quite nice. And we sat down with Edward uh, in the middle of the Panama International Film Festival to talk about many things. 
The conversation starts with almost talking about his near lifelong friend whom he grew up with in the East LA barrios, the Japanese American florist and his wife accompanied almost to Panama as sort of a gift and trip and adventure to have with uh, the three of them. And uh, it was really a lovely way to start. But it also suggests some of the roots of almost his own background, not melting pot as he puts it, but the salad bowl. Give a listen. Here we are. That's great. That's us when we were six years old. And he happens to live in Panama now? No, 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 no. I brought him with me for his birthday. His birthday was on Sunday, so I brought him for his birthday. President was to bring him to Panama to right. enjoy ourselves in Panama. And we've been friends for 68 years. Oh, that's so fabulous. It's fantastic, to be honest with you. And his family helped me out immensely by giving me examples of what life would, you know, because when you're a little kid, you know, what the hell. Right. I went over there and I and I said, can I play with your son? So, oh, you want to play with my son? Okay, sure, come on over here. Here, here's a broom. You start over in the corner. <laughs> I said, what the heck? And I started sweeping and I looked around and he was sweeping in the other corner and he laughed and I started laughing because we were there both sweeping. So I loved it. I loved it. I started working there. Tom and, Sawyer approved. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> And and they, they work seven days a week for sixteen your, hours your every day. When he was young and too. to this day, does to he this have day. the flower shop? Oh now? yes, he does. Three generations since nineteen thirty, they've had that flower shop. And it's where is it located in East, in East LA? Yeah, Montebello. Montebello. M's Flowers. They had five stores, but each one of the of the sons and daughters got a store when the mother died. So he got the one in Montebello. But your father was a hard worker, too. Yes, he was. He was a welder, right? Yes, he was. My father was a welder, and my mother was unprecedented. My mom was one of a kind. She just passed. She passed in December. Mm, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, she was 92, and uh, it was a surprise. It actually hit us too hard because uh, we weren't expecting it. She was in good shape at night. Yes, she was. Very good shape. She was driving still. She she lasted seven days after that stroke. Wow. Yeah, pretty good run. Oh, I think it's great. I mean, if I can match that, I'll be very happy. I'm right. 72 now. That means I have another 20 years. I'm, right. I'm, right. I'm exactly. a good feeling. But I'm taking care of myself a little bit more than she did. Are you? Yeah, I, I'm a vegan, so I'm oh. a lot oh. different kind of looking at life. Right. You're loving the fruit downstairs. Oh, you? everything. Everything. Yeah. I like vegetables. I like plants. Yeah. I like to eat plants, plant diet. People say, why do you do it? I said, because of indigestion. I don't do it to save animals. I'm doing it because my digestive system works better when I don't ingest animal products. Sure. Anything, honey, anything. You know, I use agave. I guess we wanted to start a little bit with the, the reasons you are here for this particular thing, besides taking your dear lifelong friends uh, on a wonderful trip. You did the, the screening last night of Stand and deliver. It mm-hmm. was interesting to see that after 30 years. So how's it been for you to see it? It was very emotional. Really? I, I really wept, openly wept, and I tried to speak after it was over, and I couldn't do it very well because I miss him. Even to this moment of thinking about him, I miss him dearly. He's a great human being yeah. and died at the age of 76. I'm 72 now, so that gives me four more years, you know, and I said, that's way too young. In yeah. four years, I'm going to still be in very good, strong health, hopefully, God willing. Basically, he died uh, of cancer in the stomach. He was a unique figure in so many ways, and, and, and a quirky one, it seems like, oh, some oh, of the things. You saw what he yeah. did. You know, people say, you know, after watching the movie, they go, you know, wow, what an incredible performance, what a great 
director. I said, I had nothing to do with director. <laughs> I had everything to do with him. Yeah. I did him. I didn't, they didn't direct me through that, right. that uh, performance. You were no. channeling him. Yes. Yeah. And, and those were really Great his. Great understanding. It was really his sort of teaching. Everything. You know, so Everything. Unique. That whole idea of him, like he would walk through the, the you saw the way, they go, yeah, and that throw my, his yeah. body was like hunched over, and they go, don't, 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 don't. That, all that was him. Wow. You know, the way he put his hands in his body. Right, I noticed that particular, that little side thing. He, he did all that. That was all him. Everything, the the humor, the subtle humor. You can't tell me that a writer was going to write, you know, line up on the wall like a snake. Right. You know. It is an interesting project. One of the things that I found amusing was that in the end credits, the list of, of contributors to make the movie included an insurance company, Chubb, I think another one, Transamerica, Arco. 5,000, 10,000 from Arco, 3,000 from... It was crazy how we got right. ready to do that. Right, you piece this thing together, I mean, it's one thing to have multiple sources if you're like Canal Plus and a bunch of European guys doing some... $5 million movie, but to have it in a couple of insurance companies and a, a petroleum company chip in was pretty wacky. But that was, I mean, how, how did that process come together to be able to finance it? The uh, uh, Tom Muska and Ramon Menendez uh, and myself started on the project in 1983. It took us forever to get the money. And, and we got 450000 from public broadcasting. American Playhouse at that time, Lindsay Law, who was the executive producer of the movie, gave us that to seed money to start the, the process because we couldn't get it from anywhere else. And so we we actually had a deal that worked out with public broadcasting, PBS. So they, they got to show it. You know, They showed it on television. They, they, Did they show it before the theatrical No, we, we, okay. they gave me the opportunity to release it for a week. But they, oh, for a week. Right. Okay. Well, it's it, like a Netflix it's, model. Yeah, exactly. And this was 88. Uh, actually, it, it went longer than a week because Warner Brothers bought it. Yeah, that's what I thought was interesting. Yeah. Warner Brothers. PBS and these Well, companies. Warner Brothers bought it knowing that the, the, the television rights were already given to them, but they were willing to then. They gave us uh, $5 million for the picture, and it only cost a million to make. So all of a sudden, a million too. They gave us that, and. and uh, they worked out a really good working relationship with us, and so PBS got their money back. That's great. Next day, yeah, boom, they got their money back, money all back. of their money back, plus they got the picture. That seed grew, as they said. And they were really counting on foreign sales, obviously. Domestic. I was going to release it for a week. Oh, so and then, then they pay. saw it, and bingo, they got it, they bought it, and they, yeah. they, they worked out the deal with PBS and said, we're going to put it out as a major motion picture, and then you guys have television rights. And they said, of course, because they got their money back, all of it. In, in terms everybody. of the influence of that movie 30 years later, it certainly opened the door to thinking about you know, moving past that, the subtle racism of diminished expectations about how even the, the one teacher there is like, oh, the kids can't do that, and is trying to... Like, let's just think about if we can challenge, if we can engage, if we can be better at teaching and, and helping these kids and hoping and pushing and, and getting them to a next level. Do you think that that message continues to resonate? Does that continue to affect education? Let me just put it to you this way. I learned through uh, different teachers' organizations in America that that is the single most viewed film of any film ever made in the United States of America. I said, what are you talking about? That's the accolade that it has now. It more than it'd be gone with the wind fifteen years ago. Why? Because teachers all over America use it every year. They use it not only to 
you know, motivate the students themselves. Of course. They sit there. Can you imagine sitting down in a classroom, showing that movie, and then getting up in front of the class to teach it? Right. After seeing that movie and let the kids see that that teacher work? Yeah, don't be boring. <laughs> no, just the opposite. Have a tremendous passion and be able to convince them that what you're doing is something that you believe in right. as much as they do and that you'll help them get through the process of learning because learning is, is a process and you have to have the courage and that's what most kids don't have. They don't have the courage to try to do something that they might fail in. So mathematics is like number one. It's like a language. You, or musicians, you know, you try to play an instrument, you go, well, wait a minute, you know, and then all of a sudden you say, wow, I can't do this at all, you know. And But then slowly you get people that help you, and pretty soon you find yourself saying, wow, I can really do this. And that's what they did. And he did it. He really did it. I mean, you got to remember, these kids were in, in remedial math when he walked in, and he brought them to a level of belief. He took... He took the best of right. those kids. He cherry picked, but you have to I mean that. He true. had to. He yeah. took eighteen of them, right. and he carried them for two years. But you saw the way he did it. Yeah. I mean, he he signed contracts. They worked on Saturdays. They they worked during all summer, summer, all summer, you know. And and but the kids were willing to do that sure. because they knew what was going to happen, sure. and it happened. You know, Nethead, the kid that played Nethead, that yeah. character, yeah. he's yeah. a lieutenant colonel. He flies F sixteens. Uh, many of them became. A major, major scientists, major, major doctors, major, major people in the world. They created, he created his final year of teaching was in Sacramento. He got in a lot of trouble in East L.A. Garfield because the teachers got jealous, right. very jealous. And so eventually they made it because presidents went to go see him in his classroom after the movie. <laughs> They'd go over and visit him in his classroom and watch him work, and he'd be there, and the President of the United States just came to his class again. And, and there were other teachers that were doing advanced placement teachings at that school also that felt, you know, hey, you, you know, what's the difference? Why Come this on. guy? Yeah, yeah right, exactly. Right. That was one of the first films, I think, that sort of broke through and said, hey, there's a, an opportunity to talk to a Latino Audience. market. And now here we are, are in Panama trying to build broader awareness of Latino Spanish language film, not just in Panama, where they're really working hard, but, but up and down Central and Latin America. What's your perspective on the opportunities for that audience in the United States and for films talking to that audience? We created the Latino International Film Festival for that reason also. That's where the, the programmer of this festival is our programmer in, in, in Los Angeles. Diana. Yes, she's also the programmer for Toronto. Though. Right. She's the primary primer. She's a busy woman. She's excellent at yeah, what she does. Yeah. She's the reason why I have hope because she's very, very strong in what she does. And she does it very well. Mm. And she's trusted. So people give her, her the films. So that being said, I believe that there is a huge market, and there is, because when, when it comes to, say a major motion picture comes out, Marvel movie, the next big box office, you can guarantee that when it opens and makes 80 million, 90 million, you can guarantee that the minimum, 37% of all the people who put a dollar in there are Latino. And it can go all the way up to 52%. So more than half of the people that give make that eighty million or ninety million for that weekend comes from the Latino community. They love like, to go to the movies. They love to spend their money in entertainment. Yeah. Do you feel like Hollywood is finally acknowledging no. and, and accepting and doing something about that? No. 
just the opposite. They have no consideration whatsoever. They have no desire to go into the Latino market and, and get a Latino story being told or get a story being told by a Latino. Jennifer Lopez has had good success. I've had moderate success. Andy Garcia, moderate success. Uh, Michael Pena right now, moderate success. I just interviewed Emilio Estevez. About Emilio. His new film that came out this last yeah, week. Yeah, Emilio Estevez. Yeah. It's over. I mean, he's he's director now. I don't even think he acts anymore. He may well, act in his own movie. movie. He's, yeah, exactly. yeah, he might act in his own movie with his yeah. father, but basically, he's a, he's a filmmaker. Right. And as I am now, yeah. I'm more of a filmmaker. But I, I still work. I have a couple of films that I that are coming out this year that I star in. So. What about this Windows on the Wall? Is that your son's film? Boy, he just won Best uh, Director with Where? that film at the uh, uh, Method Film Festival in, in L.A. And it won your best director. Son, yes, best director, best uh, screenplay, and best supporting actor. You got best supporting got, actor, yeah, for that. Yeah, and that yeah. is going to come out this year. God willing, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to tell you the truth, I have no idea because we don't have any offers yet. Right, this it is, just came out. It this just is started. a fiction film about the Winners in the World restaurant. Yes, and at the top of the trade center. Yes, very interesting concept and very well written by uh, Robert Anderson. It's the story of a his family who's an undocumented worker and worked there, and he wants to find out what happened to his Exactly. Son. That's how simple it is. Obviously, you have to watch the movie. The other thing that you're here for is this film, The Sentence, a first-time filmmaker talking about a very personal story about why you, what your engagement is with it. Other than we presented it at the Latin, Latino International Film Festival, Los Angeles, La Leaf. It was our opening film. Brilliant piece of work. If you haven't seen it, it's very powerful. It's about, you know, the woman was uh, pardoned by Obama at the end. It tells you what happens to her. And, and they go through the whole, all the years that she was in prison. The, the family documented, the, 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 the brother did, an, and it was sad. I mean, there's some moments there that you just tear your heart out. It's really difficult, especially for the mother and the father of the girl. And they had, she had kids. So you see them, the movie starts with their babies, and they take her. You know, they got it on film. And it was really the husband, I guess, or the boyfriend had the problem. Mm -hmm. And she was just like caught in there. She didn't do anything, but she was living in the house when he was doing what he was doing, dealing in drugs. And so she, she got taken out, and the kids were taken. The family kept the kids. So they, they take her, and they... Put her in jail for seven years. Until conspiracy. Oh, yeah. Right. Yes. Drug conspiracy laws are pretty powerful. Very powerful. You'll appreciate the movie. It's mm -hmm. a beautiful documentary. So you're helping your actors. Bringing awareness helping, to it. Bringing awareness. That's all. Yeah, yourself. which I do most of the time in my life is bring awareness to the difficulties of people's plight. That I've seems done that to for 95% of my life is that. Yeah, it seems like a real theme in your life. It is. I mean, I don't know how else to tell you. That's how I stay in balance. You know, I've, I've received so much accolade. I've received so much support from life itself. I mean, I, I live a very privileged life. I mean, I've been able to live as an artist my entire life. I, since I was a little kid, 14 years old, when I started singing, it was a rock and roll band. People started supporting me. They started to come and watch me. And so from that, it was a situation of being able to continue my work. And then when I was in first year of college, East LA Community College, I took an acting class. And then that combined with music. And pretty soon, 1978 came around after me being in theater and singing and theater and singing. Boom, I hit a, a piece of work that used me as a singer performer. And I did Zoot Suit and it was all over. American Theater Wing, which is the uh, curator of theater in the United States of America, proclaimed that there was three 
definitive characters devised on the American stage in the history of American theater. Stanley Kowalski, streetcar, Willie Loman, death of a salesman, and El Pachuco and Zuzu. You seem so conscious when you talk about in interviews El Pachuco, and when you did it, you were only, I think, 31. Yes. You hadn't done that much training for theater. I mean, I done, you did, I did you 14 years. But the way you talk about how kids in the barrio used attitude and self-esteem as a shield, and how you use that in El Pachuco, and I love the way you talk about the character, like when you, when you talked about getting the old suit for the in Miami Vice, and how you always have creative control of your characters. How how did that come about? That's not something that most actors have. I've never heard anybody having it right. in television. The yeah, directors don't let go of that. No. Or the showrunner. Or the, the, the or the networks. Or the networks, right? I mean, I had non-exclusive contract with Miami Vice. That's the first time I got it. But that's the only way they could get me. I was, at that time, I had done Blade Runner, I had done uh, Wolfen, I had done Zutsu. was carrying around the ballad of Gregorio Cortez, which I highly recommend. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. When Michael Mann called me to do Miami Vice, I was walking around with uh, uh, the ballad of Gregorio Cortez, putting it for free in theaters all over America. I said, I'm working, man. <laughs> I can't do this. And at the time, we already knew about uh, Stand and Deliver. That was 83 is when Stand and Deliver started, and then we didn't get it going until 1987. When Michael Mann called me, I said, I can't do it. I wish I could, believe me, when Gregory Sierra was doing it. And uh, he quit, and they were stuck. Did, they, you, did you know this was going to be a, an interesting role? I mean, no. Uh, with a name like Miami Vice? Are you kidding me? The last thing I wanted to do was a show called Miami Vice. Right. It was really one of the first that had sort of a mixed uh, cast. I mean, it was a very diverse Oh, very cast. diverse. I mean, the whole idea was very unique in respect, yeah. but it was very commercial. Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we forget that, you know, visually it was very striking, and use of music was very striking, but, but even that cast was a big change. Of course, and, and a couple of things. It was a multicultural cast, that being said. It was based on, in 1984 on what was going on at that period in time. It was an MTV cop show. That's how Anthony Yurkovich sold it. And that's how they got Michael Mann, who had done Thief, which was a great movie. Beautiful. Great movie. It's his first film. He went right through the roof. And the second movie he was making, he was going to do it called Manhunter, which was a Hannibal Lecter story of right. uh, that whole thing, you know. Uh -huh. And that's how I got him to, to swing the other way. I called me and said, uh, you know, please come and help me. I need your help. And I didn't know who he was. And I mean, I knew who he was. I just never had met him. And he's calling me up on the telephone, my private number. And I said, hi, how are you? Hey, it's Michael Mann. Hey, how are you, Michael? Wow. And I was doing my work on my house. I had no money. And he says, I need your help. And I said, well, I'd love to help you. But I told Steve Bochco, you know, and may he rest in peace. But Steve called me to do... NYPD Blue, he called me to help me him do uh, Hill Street Blues, and but I couldn't be a part of that because I couldn't sign an exclusive contract. I could never do television because they have exclusivity, and I'm not into exclusivity. I'm not trying to make money with my business. I was trying to create pieces of work that would actually, you know, help me understand who I was first and foremost, and second of all, try to to make something that had never been seen before. So when Michael Mann called me, I said I can't do it. I wish I could, but I can't. And uh, so that was it. I hung up the phone. 
And then he called back again and he raised the money. And now he had raised the money to a point of where he had given me a good price at the very beginning. He was, we were talking business, real business. Mm -hmm. and, and he turned around and when he told me that, I said, my God, I, I thought to myself, that's more money than my father made in his entire lifetime. I was going to make in 20 episodes wow. of a television program. Back in the old days. This is, I hadn't made a penny. Right. I mean, I'd done Blade Runner, but the Blade Runner didn't make a lot of money. It wasn't big open. No. no. No, and, and Zoot Suit, I made $5,000 to make that movie. It was a joke. Terrible. I made some pretty good money on Wolfit, but not great. And that was my very first film after doing Zoot Suit, the play. So you were needing the cash. Yeah, I mean, I, hadn't, I needed a roof on my house. That's it. <laughs> you know, just right, that right, kind of stuff, right. you know. Never, not that it ever but and, but I said no. I said no to the dollar. And people said, how could you do that? I said, because I've been saying no to the dollar before I needed it. So it was easy for me to say no. I didn't need the money, so get out of here. I don't need. I don't want your money. I want. I want to do great work. I want right. to do work that I can look back and say, "Wow, man, I really learned from that. I got something out of it, and the community got something out of it." So when Michael called me and said to me, "I want you," I couldn't do it, and he raised the money. I said, "My God!" But I said no. I said no four times. By his fifth time, he said to me, "What do you need?" I said, "I need non-exclusivity, and I need a, a, a creative control of my character." And I know that first of all, NBC's not going to give me. I'm not exclusivity, and I know you're not going to give me creative control of my character, so I can't work with you guys. But if you need me, use me for two or three episodes, and I'll be there. But Did don't you? try to get me to, to do your program and become a permanent member of that program. I can't do it. Bingo. He came back to me and says, you got it. I said, what? He goes, you got the non-exclusive contract. You just give me 60 days when you want to leave, and you can leave, but you got to come back. I said, okay. That sounds good. And, and he says, and... And he said, and you have creative control of your character. Do you think that they wrote Lieutenant Castillo? Come on. Do you think that they wrote, uh, you know, Stand and Deliver? Do you think that somebody <laughs> wrote Gaff of, of, of Battle, uh, Blade Runner? Right, right. No, they didn't write those characters. They wrote characters that they gave me. Con uh, they said, we want you to play this. I said, great. I, I remember when I walked into to Ridley Scott and said to Ridley, Ridley, it was a small role. I mean, nothing. I was the one who helped create the, the origami. I created the language, you know, culture. I made myself look Chinese, Italian, all kinds of different cultures that I put together, and even the way I dressed. I brought culture. I brought the Asian influence to the movie. That, that reminds me, you have uh, your dear friend here of Japanese descent. Um, and there is a Zen component of Lieutenant Castillo. And to some of your other characters, really, too. I mean, the Battlestar Galactica guy has a certain oh, Bushido code, almost. You know. Well, Bushido is for... for, for yeah, yeah, but Bushido was for uh, uh, um, Miami Vice. Yeah. That's who I wrote. The, him, John Leakley and I wrote Bushido. Yeah, we wrote that episode. And I directed it. It was the right. first thing I directed. You know, Bushido for Miami Vice. I'm guessing your your longtime friend helped influence even your thinking about <laughs> your expressions of creativity. Well, in not so much in respects of his cultural dynamic, because I was very much stuck inside of his culture. I was born at the first Japanese hospital in Los Angeles, yeah. the same one he was born in. It was uh, my doctor was Doctor Ichioka, but no, he had his what what I what I got from culture. I was born in an area that was so incredible that I didn't know how incredible it was until I left. And I started to go out into, you know, San Fernando Valley, into Beverly Hills, and into the west side. 
of Los Angeles and saw that where I lived, I used the salad bowl kind of as a, as a relationship. And I, I create when I created this understanding of, within myself, I started to, to use it in public. And I said, we were never a melting pot. Where I came from, the lettuce stayed the lettuce, the tomatoes stayed the tomatoes, the like onions stayed the onions. It's a salad. It's a salad. No, I'm just saying that they're all in different little... That's how it was in in West L.A. Yes. They were in different pockets. Yeah. You know, when I went to San Fernando Valley, the the African-American, the olive was over there, and the, 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 you know, the onion was over there, and the Mm -hmm. tomato was over there in different parts of the plate. Where I came from, it was tossed. You mean Boyle Heights? Boyle Heights. Okay. Boyle Heights was tossed. Next to me was an, a Navajo family big right Jew, next door. Big Jewish community there. Huge Jewish community, huge Mormon community, huge. There was Chinese, there was Japanese, there was Korean. The Koreans owned one store, the Chinese owned the other store, the, the Latinos owned the store in the middle. Right across the street was a Japanese family. To the right of me, as I walk out the front door, to the right of me was an uh, indigenous family. To the left of me was a Mexican-American family. People say, you know, how did you learn how to do your pachuco? They were standing on the corner. Can we talk a little about, you said that Gregorio Cortez is more important now than it was then. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about that in the context of immigration and what's going on today? Basically, uh, we're not very well versed on the cultures that we're dealing with. We're stereotyping everybody, and we have been since the beginning. And the Ballad of Gregorio Cortez was a misunderstanding of one word that caused the largest manhunt in the history of Texas. It was incredible what happened. Accused of killing a sheriff, and he was a gang, and they started killing Mexicans on right all across Texas. The Texas Rangers were notorious for killing people. One man, one riot. Yep. But why is it more important now than it was then? Because it allows you to understand the culture, period. It's like stand and deliver. It allows you to understand the culture. In a big way, it's more prolific today than deliver than it was 30 years ago when we made it. Same thing with the ballad. The ballad we made in 1981. And so it's more important today, that film. That's what's great about the work that I've done. Mm-hmm. American Me, Selena, Mi Familia, Ballad, Zoot Suit, Alambrista. Mm-hmm. Those are films that 100 years from today, people are going to turn around and say, hey, have you ever seen, did you ever see this movie? Look at this movie. And they go, did you know anything about this? No. And that's just like what Spike Lee's done in his world. Yes. Same thing. I love Black Klansman. I thought it was the, one of the best films, if not the best film of the year. I loved it. I yeah. thought he was the best thing he's ever done. Last night, you mentioned that the best TV work that you've ever done, despite being in a bunch of really good shows, including Mayans now. You've done some nice work in the Mayans as a, oh, as a shopkeeper, the Latino shopkeeper. Was uh, Battlestar Galactica, which no I greatly question. enjoyed. No greatly question enjoyed. about it. But tell me why you think that was your best work or the most, I mean, because it's certainly, to me... It's the best usage, that's what I've said. It's the best usage of television that I've ever been a part of. And I've done a lot of good work on television, but nothing compares to Battlestar. In terms of usage, you mean in terms of the... the, the Stories. Storylines and their... And their impact. Relevance is right now. They're the future. What Blade Runner did to us to prepare us, that's what uh, Battlestar did. Because if you were to take Battlestar and watch all the programs... All 76 episodes. Okay, well, it's 88. But 88 episodes. And then the three, two movies, three, two movies. Yeah, two movies. I, I did one and all of that hours of, of, of 
programming and you watch the whole thing, you get to the very end. This is a spoiler for everybody that hasn't seen the program. Now is the time to turn off this podcast. Okay. <laughs> but at the same time, um, if you get to the very end, the very final scene of the very final moment of this program deals with the ability to say, this has happened before, it's going to happen again, says Baltar, head Baltar, to head six, okay, I mean, the, the, the Cylon. The six says, this has happened before, it's going to happen again in the year that they're saying this is 2008. Okay, that's when we finished the program, 10 years ago, 11 years ago now. Baltar, this character that's very well defined in this says, no, no, I think that humanity has learned its lesson. And they walk away down uh, 7th Street and in, in Times Square, and it goes to black, and that's the end of the movie. That's the end of the whole series, right? They end it there. If you get Blade Runner, it's 2019. Put it in, and all of a sudden, boom, you're now into the world from 2008 to 2019. In 2019, there's replicants, and they're like... Cylons, mm -hmm. they've created, and we have, to this moment, people, I've just asked most recently, says, what do you think is going on? I said, well, basically, you know, they asked me if there would be robots that look like humans. I said, you know, yes, I do, but it's going to be different than what we think. First of all, I really believe in my heart that people are being cloned. In my heart, just like they're cloning uh, animals, uh -huh. and they have been for 30 years, something mm -hmm. like that. And, and so, LA was like in the late 70s, early 80s, right? Okay. So, that being said, I believe that somebody's already done it, but they haven't said anything because it's against humanities. Well, the Chinese, the Chinese researcher said, who claimed he'd done some uh, tweaking of human, human embryos that had been carried to term last year. Okay. So, so that, that here we go. And there was a lot of blowback against Oh, yeah. Him. But they, somebody did it before him. Probably. Trust me. Okay. So they've been doing this, okay, in private. So now they're cloning people. That being said, I really believe that we're just inches away, and they've already done it with glasses, so that you can connect into the, um, with glasses, they have little windows of the glass. And Google Glass. Google, Google, Google Glass. Glass. Yeah. Yeah. Successors okay. now. Yeah, so you can look and you can get Google on there, so you can actually recite the entire Declaration of Independence right. and make everybody think that you're the smartest person in the history of the planet. Right. But by doing that, well, I think we're going to put chips very shortly. We'll be able to put a chip inside the brain in which then it would feed the same way that you feed your phone. Okay, and that's coming very shortly, and that will make us robotic. Close we won't be robotic like this, right. but we'll be physically, but we will be connected to a network. And which, each other. And each other, if we can. Yeah. yeah, no, no, it's coming. And we're already that way with our phones. I mean, forget right. it. They're, they're virtually surgically attached to many people, so. Yes. Well, Rod Memorial, obviously, make Battlestar Galactica, is um, one of the guys behind one of the many Apple projects, which sort of, I mean, you more certainly knows how to make a great science fiction project, uh, as Battlestar Galactica and many other projects he's done demonstrate. What's your thoughts on the new streaming platforms and what they mean for uh, niche voices? To get a chance to be heard. For instance, uh, Emilio Estevez's movie was partly financed by a Spanish language focused site called Pondolo, whose CEO I know. 
there are ways to get the word out and to reach folks. I mean, do you think it's positive, negative? What, what are the opportunities? I think it's positive. I mean, any way that we can get a, a, a quote-unquote audiovisual event out, because basically it's the strongest medium ever created in human existence. There's nothing that attacks the subconscious mind more than the audiovisual event. Nothing. No painting, no book, no live concert, nothing attacks the subconscious mind like that. So that being said, yes, it's very much a situation now where we, um, you know, I think streaming is excellent. I mean, the more venues we have for getting the audiovisual out there, the better. And, and telephones are great. I mean, I watch things on telephones. And, and I watch them on you know computer and I watch them on the big screen. And of course, the big screen is the best. There's mm-hmm. nothing better than going to a theater. And that'll never die, by the way. Nothing will ever no. usurp the experience of going to, to a, a quote-unquote uh, motion picture theater house and sitting down and with, you know, 5.18 pretty soon, <laughs> whatever they're going to get sound-wise. Right, right. And the Youth Cinema Project, is that still, still going on? It's incredible. I know you made 128 films from an interview that I did. It's 168 now, 100, this year. It, and you actually go into the schools, and are they volunteers we're, we're, that go into the schools? No, school? no, no, no volunteers. Everybody is, is hired and, and used. They're, they're paid professionals to go into do, uh, you know, uh, teach film. And, and where are these schools? Right now, in the state of California. No. From Northern California to Southern California. All the way from, uh, we're at right now in, in San Diego, all the way up to the other side of uh, San Francisco and San Jose in that area up there. Palo, Palo Alto and all those places. And that'll do it. I think Edward uh, James almost would have continued talking for a considerable further time than we uh, ended up going. We were cut off at a certain point because he had to actually go on to another interview, but he was an enthusiastic and avuncular storyteller, as you can tell, and lots to say, and I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. While I'm at it, I want to put in a good word for the Panama International Film Festival. They were great hosts. It's a really interesting regional festival that tries to bridge the gap between North and South America, uh, between the English and Spanish languages. Panama's long been a crossroads in many ways, and it was no more, no more so evident than in the festival itself with the many kinds of offerings it has. As Edward almost mentioned, Diana Sanchez is not only the programmer for this festival, but has just been elevated to senior director at the Toronto International Film Festival and also handles programming for almost his own L.A. Latino International Film Festival. So she has her hand on the pulse of Spanish-language film throughout the hemisphere and far beyond and does great stuff in concert with Patuca Heilbronn, the show's, uh, the, the festival's executive director. It was a, it's a really fun gathering, and I tr- strongly recommend if you want to go on a trip to somewhere that's a bit exotic and fascinating, but not too crazily so, an easy flight with some fairly easy access for things like currency and power supply systems and all kinds of things like that. It's a, it's a good run. In the meantime, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what we do, rate, review, share. Those all make a big difference for the magic algorithm machines. Please put it out there if any way, in any way you can. If you uh, 
find what we do and our conversations of value. And I promise to keep trying to do interesting stuff that might illuminate and inform and entertain you. In the meantime, you have a great week and I'll be talking to you soon. This is David Bloom, over and out. You've been listening to Bloom in Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone.